following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now, I know some of you have been reading through the book as we've been going through 2 Corinthians. Some of you have been reading ahead which is great, and you've already finished. Some of you are tracking through the book as we go. And if, if you're doing that, it's such a good discipline to do, by the way, uh, to be looking at this, uh, these Scripture passages for yourself and studying them for yourself in your own time with God. It's a wonderful practice. If you've been doing that and you've got as far as we've got today, you might have noticed something. You might have noticed that this chapter, chapter 10, is a big, big shift from chapter 9. It just sounds completely different. If you'd read through chapters 8 and then 9 and hit 10, you don't, you don't hear it this morning because Richard just started in chapter 10. But the difference between chapter 9 and chapter 10 is very striking. So striking that some people have argued that chapters 10 to 13, this last section of the letter, is a separate letter. They've argued that 10 through 13 must be some other letter, 3 Corinthians maybe, that Paul wrote at some other time and down the track someone just tacked it on to 2 Corinthians because the, the, the change of tone is so severe. But in fact, chapters 10 through 13 that we're coming to now really forms the crescendo of the whole book. This is the climax that we are building towards now, particularly the chapter we're going to look at next week, chapters 11 and chapter 12. It's the great crescendo, and Paul is picking up some themes that he's been working on in some subtle ways all through this book, and he's finally bringing them into broad daylight, and the intensity is building now, and the tone is building. It's becoming more serious. It's becoming more direct. Paul's becoming more impassioned, and the whole thing is just rising. If, if the whole book of 2 Corinthians is a symphony, we are getting very close now to the great crescendo movement of that symphony. So what Paul's doing in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians is he's dealing with this issue of the super apostles in Corinth. You might have heard me talking about these guys through the series, the super apostles. That's what Paul calls them. That's his name for them. Uh, he kind of uses that term pretty sarcastically because they weren't very super and they weren't actually apostles. So he's just, he's just being sarcastic by calling them that. These were teachers that had come in to Corinth and were having influence in the church, but they were bad news. These were guys who were just preaching a self-promoting gospel, a self-glorifying gospel, uh, a self-obsessed kind of gospel that was much more about pointing to themselves than it was about pointing to Jesus. But they had been so impressive and influential among the Corinthian church, that many of the Corinthians were now deciding they really wanted to follow these super apostles rather than follow Paul. They were so enamored with these super apostles, all of their flashy, showy teaching, all of their rhetoric, all of their amazing oratory skills. And they weren't so sure they really wanted Paul to be their spiritual father anymore. They weren't nearly as impressed with Paul as they were with these super apostles. So what Paul does in this chapter is he turns to face those in the church that are being completely intoxicated by these super apostles. He's not talking to the super apostles. He never does that in 2 Corinthians. He's talking to the church. He's writing to the church. But he's writing to that group within the church that attempted to turn away from him and towards the influence of these guys, who Paul ultimately calls false apostles, preach, preaching a different gospel to the one that he's preaching. So his tone here is, is strong. It's, it's, got a, it's got a brittle edge to it. There's a sting in the words that Paul says here. He's being very straightforward with the Corinthians. He's been quite confrontational at times. And there's times that this actually sounds very harsh to our ears because Paul is fighting 
to win these people back from this path that they're going down of allegiance to the super apostles. But given that's the strategy, he starts in an interesting way. He starts at the beginning of the chapter by saying, in verse 1, by the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. Now, the word humility there is really the word meekness. It's the Greek word that's translated meekness. Some of your translations might say meekness, maybe if you look down at the text there. Uh, others will say humility. This is, I'm reading the NIV, it says humility. But if yours says humility, it's still worth writing somewhere around that verse the word meekness. Because that's what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, I'm approaching you on the basis of meekness. Paul's saying, I'm not going to play the games of the super apostles. I'm not going to fight fire with fire. I'm not going to try and be like those guys. I'm not going to try and impress you. I'm not going to roll out my resume. I'm approaching you. I'm appealing to you on the basis of meekness. And not just any meekness, but the meekness of Christ. I'm going to appeal to you, Paul says, on the basis of the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus. And meekness is not a virtue that we hear a lot about today, is it? You don't hear much about meekness. I mean, you think about the character traits that we think about in respect, honesty, and integrity, and trustworthiness, and respect, and so on. We, you don't hear people talk about meekness. And when we do think about meekness, we tend to think about it in connection with someone being weak and timid and insecure, don't we? So you might say, oh, that person, you know, they're a bit meek and mild-mannered. You know, and what you're really meaning is they don't have a lot of self-confidence. They don't really, they're not very self-assured. They're not very assertive. They're kind of a jelly spine. They're very fragile. They're very frail. You know, be, be, be gentle on them because they can't really assert themselves. And so extra care required kind of thing. You know, that's someone would say, that's a meek person. It's kind of associated with weakness. And it tends to be, we tend to use it in a derogatory way. That's a very meek kind of person. But think about this. If that's how we define meekness, then how do you reconcile that with what Paul says in this chapter? Because he's being direct. He's not being all wishy-washy. He's not being a jelly spine. He's being quite straightforward. He's being very frank with the Corinthians. So if Paul's saying, I'm appealing to you on the basis of weakness, and weakness is just this kind of softness, then this doesn't square very well with what he then goes on to say. It also doesn't square very well with the rest of the Bible. Do you know in the Old Testament, here's a question, you know in the Old Testament, who is the person who is described as the most meek man on the face of the earth? Anyone know? Moses. So think about Moses coming down from Mount Sinai, smashing the tablets of the law in anger, and then making the Israelites drink the dust of the golden calf. And this is meek Moses. This is a man of meekness. It just doesn't seem to square. If we define meekness purely on the basis of weakness and timidity, it doesn't square with the life of Moses. It doesn't square particularly well with the life of Paul. And what that tells us is maybe there's a disconnect. Maybe the way we think about weakness, the caricature of weakness that we have in our contemporary culture, is not a particularly biblical picture of meekness. And so I want to explore this with you this morning, what meekness involves, what it looks like in Paul's life as he writes this. I want to look not only at what Paul says, but at how he says it. I want to look at what meekness looks like in the life of Jesus, because that's who Paul's appealing to. He's really just saying, I'm coming to you with the character of Christ. And then I want to look at what meekness looks like in our own lives as we try and take on this character virtue and rediscover it in our own day, something that's been quite lost, the art of meekness. 
So Paul says, I appeal to you on the basis of meekness. But meekness is not a specifically Christian virtue. It wasn't, it's not just something in the Bible. It wasn't just something Paul made up. It wasn't even just something that Jesus made up. Meekness was a virtue that was around in the world of Paul's day and predated him by quite a lot. One of the most famous writers about meekness was the philosopher Aristotle. The Greek philosopher Aristotle lived a few hundred years before Paul. Paul would have heard of Aristotle. He may have studied Aristotle because Paul seems fairly schooled up on Greek philosophy. He's a, he's a well-educated guy. He may well have studied Aristotle's view of the virtues. And Aristotle talked a lot about virtue. He talked a lot about character. And Aristotle's view was always that virtue, character virtue, was a balance between extremes. So if Aristotle was talking about generosity, he would say it was a balance between stinginess on the one hand and recklessness on the other hand. And in the middle is generosity. It's always a balance between excess and deficiency. And so when Aristotle came to define meekness, he said meekness is the balance between excessive anger on the one hand and angerlessness on the other hand. That's interesting, isn't it? Sits there in between excessive anger and excessive angerlessness. So Aristotle's saying, if you want to develop this virtue of meekness, you've got to hold yourself back from being unrestrained in anger. Not that anger in itself is wrong, but being controlled about that. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean drifting into just being unconcerned or aloof or indifferent or completely passive in relationships either. That's not meekness either. Somehow meekness sits in between excessive anger and angerlessness. And so that's helpful to some extent. I think that at least gives us a starting point for thinking about meekness, that it's not being completely soft and wishy-washy, but it's this sort of the balance of extremes here. That led one Christian writer to describe meekness as being angry in the right way at the right time for the right reasons. That's how he defined meekness. So Aristotle gets us started thinking about meekness, but we can't stay there. We can't stay with Aristotle because Paul doesn't. Paul moves on to Jesus. Paul's not just interested in giving us a Greek secular view of what meekness involves. What Paul's doing is taking a virtue that was talked about in his world and completely reconfiguring it around Jesus. And this is what Paul does so often. He takes something from his world. He takes a concept, takes an idea, takes a virtue that already had some currency in the ancient world, and he completely reorientates it around Jesus and around the gospel and now gives us this uniquely Christian perspective of that concept or that idea or that virtue. That's what he's doing with the virtue of meekness. He's saying, what does meekness mean now in view of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? What does meekness look like? Well, the word for meekness, the Greek word for meekness, is the same word, interestingly, that is used of taming a wild animal. Same word that the Greeks would use of taming a wild animal. So if you picture, let's picture a wild stallion. I don't know whether you've ever seen a wild stallion. I haven't seen Black Beauty. But uh, you, you may have. You may have just seen it in the movies. A wild stallion. Amazing creature. Magnificent creature. One of God's masterpieces. You think of the strength that that animal possesses. The power that that animal possesses. But meekness is that animal being brought under control. Because while it's in its wild state, it, it can't be used in any human way except to look at and admire. 
It's not useful for any human purpose until it has been tamed, until its will has been broken by its rider, and then it can be engaged for various human uses and human purposes. And this is the journey of meekness. You can see already, can't you, how this applies to our lives. You can see the human equivalent of this. We are, in our own natural state, wild animals, in a sense. We're wild. We kind of have this wild, untamed nature. Every one of us has these wild impulses. And it may be an impulse towards anger, but it may not just be that. For some of you, it is. For some of you, the wildness in you is that short fuse. It is that you're quick to snap back. You're quick to, to lose your temper. You're quick to just get grumpy, get grouchy, and just say things that maybe later you regret. Some people, that's it. That is your wildness. For other people, though, it's not. For some people, it's the opposite. For some people, the wild streak is the tendency to withdraw. When there's tension, when there's conflict, when the relationship comes under a bit of strain, you know, you know who you are, some of you. You just cannot stand it. You have to get out of the room, have to get out of the relationship, have to leave. You just cannot be in that space. That is also a default setting. That's, that's the wild streak in you. It's an untamed part of you. And it just defaults to getting out in ways that are often not healthy because then you don't deal with stuff. You just avoid, 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 and you never deal with your stuff. The wildness might be a wildness towards rushing to judgment of other people. So quick to rush up and judge people and criticize them in our minds. I heard this week someone saying that the average time it takes a person to make an evaluative judgment of another person is three to five seconds. From the time that we meet them to the time that you've got them completely summed up in your mind, pigeonholed, put in a box, you know exactly who they are, you think it's three to five seconds. This is what we do. That's a wildness in us. That's part of us that has not yet been tamed. We just criticize and we, uh, we just patronize people and we slay them in our minds and we write them off and we put them in a box and, and we're done with them. It might be a wild streak that moves towards passive-aggressive behavior. It might be a bitterness and a resentment. We just have these rough edges, don't we? We've just got this wild stuff. We've just got this untamed, these untamed passions and they tend to be, in the moment, these defaults that you just find yourself going to. It's so difficult to get on any other path. You just default to that way of acting and reacting and responding to situations. We've all got it. Now, the journey of meekness is the journey of bringing that wild streak under control. But here's the difference. How do you tame that? How is that wildness brought under control, and how is it tamed? The Greeks would say, Aristotle would say, it's tamed through self-mastery, through self-control, through the control of the passions, so that we become a fully in control of ourself kind of person. But that's not the Christian answer. The Christian tradition, the biblical tradition, would say we can't possibly control our passions and our wildness on our own. We can't possibly bring these things under control on our own. We need help from outside of ourselves. We need God. We need a Savior. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives that these, these wild instincts, these default ways of, of destructive acting can be tamed and can be brought under control. And this is the path of meekness. Isn't it so different to how you think of meekness? Because we think of it as this kind of softy, jelly-spiny kind of thing. But meekness actually involves great strength. It's just that it's strength under control. Meekness is power under control. Just like that stallion that has been tamed and can now be ridden, meekness is having power under the control of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
And isn't this the way it was with Jesus? Tremendous strength. I mean, Jesus describes himself as being meek. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle, the word is meek, same word, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So Jesus describes himself as being meek. He had meekness more than anyone else had meekness. But that didn't mean he's a, he was just a weak person who was soft and timid and frail and fragile. Jesus possessed incredible strength. Jesus could be very direct with people. Jesus could bring a strong personal presence into conversations and situations. Jesus called the Pharisees a bunch of whitewashed tombs. He called them a brood of vipers. That is not the, the speech of someone that's just insecure and lacks self-confidence. Jesus knew how to be strong. He could walk into the temple and overturn the tables of the moneylenders. He knew strength, but that strength was always under control. That strength was under control because Christ was fully submitted to the work of the Father. He says, I've come to do the will of the Father. And that was it. He was utterly under the control of the Father. And so in every situation, he wasn't impulsive. He was strong, but he wasn't reckless. Jesus knew how to be strong. He knew how to speak truth, but he wasn't mean. He wasn't cruel. He didn't need to get self-defensive and pinned in a corner. He knew who he was. His will was under the will of the Father, so he could act with strength. He could carry himself with power and with the authority that he rightfully possessed, but it was always under the control of the Father, and it was always under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knew meekness because he had strength under control, strength under power. Meekness, in a sense, is uh, what we saw yesterday at the basketball game. Incredible athletes, incredible strength, incredible ability, but under control. In a sense, you could sound strange to say it, but you could say, when a team plays well, they play with meekness, strength and power, but under discipline and control. If there's recklessness and impulsiveness and hastiness, it's not a winning team. But a team of meekness is a team of great strength, but that strength is under control and under authority. Now, that should lead us to ask, where are the areas in our lives where we need to allow some of that wild edge to be tamed? Where are the areas in our lives where we need God to cultivate our character around this virtue of meekness? Maybe it is an impulse to rush to judgment and criticize others. Maybe it's being self-defensive. Maybe it's being passive-aggressive. Maybe it's just being aggressive or overly passive. So many different iterations of this stuff. But what is it in you that needs to be tamed? What are the rough edges? What's the prickliness? What's that default setting? That in the moment, you just keep on going there. What is that default setting? Are you willing to bring that before God and say, God, I want you to build meekness into this area of my life. I'm who you've made me to be. I'm created in your image, but I see this, this wildness and I want my will to be broken by your will. I want my will to be broken by the will of the Father. And in the moment, we ask the Holy Spirit to give us his strength to speak differently to act differently, to take a different tone, to take a deeper breath, and to walk in the way of Christ rather than in the way of our natural human impulses. This is the road of meekness. It's the road that Paul is seeking to walk with the Corinthians. He can still be very strong with them, but it's under control. It's the way of Jesus, strength under control. It's the way Christ wants us to walk. Power and authority are not bad things but they need to be tamed 
by the influence of the Spirit. Now, as we're pursuing this journey outwardly, we also need to be cultivating a heart of meekness inwardly. If all we're doing is working on outward character, it's just going to become legalistic. It's going to become just self-effort, and we're not going to get very far. Along the way, we need to be also cultivating an inward heart of meekness. And this is where Paul goes in this passage. In the next paragraph, he says in verse 7, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. The Corinthians were completely judging Paul by appearances. They were enamored with the super apostles. They loved the oratory skills of those apostles. They found them to be very impressive, and that's, that's who they wanted to follow because those super apostles were very flashy and very showy, and they were trained in the ways of Greek oratory, and Paul was not. And this is interesting about Paul. He says in the very next chapter, I am untrained as a speaker. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you think about Paul. I don't know about you. My perception of Paul has always been that he's an amazing public speaker. Paul spoke to groups of people all the time. I mean, you think of him in Athens speaking before the Areopagus, and he's drawing in Greek philosophy, and he's connecting it to Jesus and the unknown God. He's doing these amazing things. We assume he's an incredible public speaker, but Paul says, I'm not trained. I'm untrained as a speaker. He was not trained in the ways of speaking that made someone a great communicator and a great orator in his culture. He didn't have that. He didn't have that in his toolbox. And so he actually quotes, this is amazing, he quotes the Corinthians' verdict on his public speaking. In verse 10, here is their evaluation of his oratory skills. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. That is cutting. I mean, if one of you said that to me at the door today, you know, thanks very much for that sermon. That was unimpressive. And your speaking amounted to nothing. Have a great day. I'd be gutted. I would spend the rest of the day in tears. But Paul, I mean, think about this. Paul, they not only said it about him, but he seems to be comfortable quoting it back to them. Like, if one of you said it to me, I'd tell you what, I'm not going to put it in a letter. I'm not going to write about it to other people. I'd keep that to myself. But Paul here just says, well, this is what you've said about me. I'm just putting it out there. This is, what, this is how they'd evaluated Paul. But somehow Paul just sticks with them. And isn't that just a theme of the book, that Paul's just sticking with this dysfunctional congregation? In spite of the fact they're turning away from him, he keeps reaching out to them, and he just seems to have enough self-assurance that this doesn't completely shake him to his core. And I think the reason is because of what he said earlier. If anyone else thinks they belong to Christ, they should consider that we belong to Christ just as much as they. Paul knew that above all, he belonged to Christ. That's what kept him grounded. That's what kept him anchored, that he belonged to Christ. And his identity was not in his public speaking. It was not in his job as an apostle. It was not in his other job as a tent maker. It was not in anything that he did or anything that he said. His identity was grounded in the fact that he belonged to Christ. He knew that he belonged to Christ. And so when these accusations came, and when these criticisms came, and when he saw a church turning away and running after other fancy speakers and so-called apostles and turning their backs, it didn't devastate him. I imagine it wounded him. I mean, you know, I'm sure this hurt. But it didn't completely crush him because he knew that he belonged to Christ. And that's what kept him grounded. His roots were deep enough 
that he knew that his strength came from the Lord and not from anything that anyone said about him except God. He did what Henri Nouwen tells us we all should do. Listen to the voice that calls you the beloved. I love that. We must listen to the voice that calls us his beloved. So many other voices you can listen to, including a whole lot in your own head that aren't that healthy. But we've got to listen to the voice that calls us his beloved. I believe Paul had learned to listen to that voice. And that's what enabled him to develop this heart, this deep heart of meekness that came out in a character that didn't need to impress itself on others, didn't need to impress anyone, didn't need to try and be someone he wasn't, but was able just to be Paul and let that be enough. Willemus Brackle says this about the person of meekness. His heart is neither in turmoil nor restless, but is of an even-tempered, steadfast, and peaceful disposition. If someone assaults him either in word or deed, he will be an even sure upon which the tempestuous waves crash and then trickle away playfully. Isn't that great? That's what I want. I want to be that even sure. I don't think I'm there yet. I I think I, I feel something of... Paul's struggle may be obviously very different for me, very different circumstances, but I think those of us that do some kind of public speaking, we feel this because every time, to be honest, every time I stand up in front of you, every time I preach, I stand up with mixed motives, if I'm honest. There's a part of me that wants to preach the Word of God as faithfully and as clearly as I can to you, and then there's a part of me that really wants you to like me. Do you know what I mean? There's a part of me that wants to be liked. There's a part that I want to look impressive I want to look intelligent. I want to seem like I know the Bible, even though, to be honest, I still have to look up some books in the Bible on the contents page. My boys know the books of the Bible better than me. You know, I want to, have, I want to give you an impression because sometimes, to be honest, I still preach too much to the crowd, so to speak, too much for the accolades that I might get rather than preaching before the Lord as faithfully as I can. And that's just me sharing my heart with you. My motives are mixed at best, And I think for me, it's going to be a lifelong journey. So what I desire is that heart that's like an even sure, that the waves can crash and the waves can recede, but they don't go to my core. They don't affect me. So I don't have to play to the crowd or preach to the crowd or preach for the approval of anyone except Christ. And your situation will look different, but the same heart needs to be underneath it all, doesn't it? Because unless we have that heart that is at rest in Christ and finds its identity in Christ, we are going to act out of insecurity, as I'm often tempted to do. We're going to act out of an unsecure person, and then we're going to need to control others, and then we're going to need to manipulate others. We're going to need to coerce them, or we're going to need to people please, and we're going to need to do whatever we can for the approval of other people. It's nothing wrong with being liked, by the way. Nothing wrong with getting compliments, but it's when we live and die by them that's the problem. It's when we rise and fall on the opinions of other people that the problems come. But that doesn't happen when you've got a heart of meekness, a heart that is that even sure, that come what may, I'm not going to be devastated because I know who I am in Christ and I listen to the voice that calls me beloved. This this is a lifelong journey, isn't it? I don't know that any one of us are ever going to get to the day when we can say, yep, meekness, got it, done it, arrived. 
This is such a journey. I feel like I'm still just paddling in the shallows of all of this. I, I see, as I put this message together, I'm challenged with how far I've got to go in terms of developing a heart of meekness. But it begins by just knowing that we're already accepted, doesn't it? Not striving and trying, but knowing that we are loved and we are approved of in Christ. And that's the heart of it all. And our model for all of this is Jesus. That's who we've got to keep our eyes on. I don't think Paul really wants us to focus so much on him. He's always just saying, you just follow me as I follow Jesus. He wants us to focus on Christ. Christ had this heart. He calls himself lowly in spirit. I mean, the king of the universe calling himself lowly in spirit. That's meekness. That's incredible meekness. Jesus had that heart where he knew he was the beloved of God. And that enabled him not to act out of any insecurities or any need to manipulate on the one hand or people please on the other, but simply to act out of who he genuinely was before the Father. Strength under control. That's the heart of meekness. And it's the meekness of Jesus that enables us to have any kind of relationship with him at all because he was willing to stoop down so humbly to our plight and lift us up. Let me finish with the words of a song written by Graham Kendrick. Meekness and majesty, describing the way that this quality of meekness works itself out in the life of Jesus. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God. Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Wisdom unsearchable, God the invisible, love indestructible, in frailty appears. Lord of infinity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Beautiful words. Let's pray. Jesus, we wanted to simply ask this morning that you would build in us a heart of meekness, that you would help us of all the voices that are calling out to us to listen to the voice that calls us your beloved, that our hearts might become that even sure upon which the waves crash and then recede. And out of that heart of meekness, Lord, would you grow our character to be those who reflect the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Able to have strength and be exactly who we are. But to have that strength under the control and under the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us people of meekness, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.